The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Rise and shine, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. We have fabulous food, delicious conversation, and technological insight this morning in your radio. This show is an original food-focused radio program, and I offer advice and recipes and informative interviews with an array of personalities and experts in the culinary world and beyond. Our goal is to make you a better cook or at least make you hungry, and we're going to do just that this morning, we hope. Good morning to you, Lana. Good morning. We hope that you'll check out ChefJamie.com, where we're always serving up seconds and recipes heard on this show. Stay tuned. Coming up, for the love of foie gras, in just a moment, we're going to teach you how to sear the perfect piece of foie gras, and you're going to hear live from Paris, from Pascal Olatz. He is of Brasserie Pascal and multiple restaurants here in Newport Beach, so stay tuned. He has a perspective on the truly fabulous French foie. Also coming up, mixologist Tony Abuganum is shaking it up for summer. You're going to hear about the game-changing technology that brings your Heinz ketchup bottle alive. Do you know about Blipper? You're going to learn about it here. And coming up next hour, the Smoked Olives' newest release, Oh my God, it's so good. Wait till you taste smoked olive oil. We'll tell you all about it. And you can get more from each bite when we taste what you're missing with Barb Stuckey, a taste test to see if you're a hyper taster coming up next hour. So two hours of fabulous food right here in your radio. Please stay tuned. Uh, Okay, coming up first this morning, it's all about knowing the techniques to be a better cook, right? And so if you can master the skills, then you're guaranteed to make your dishes come alive with flavor. And that's what I'm all about. So if you'll notice at chefjamie.com, there's a weekly technique. And this week is how to sear foie gras. When you're cooking foie gras, I always suggest, right, Lana, that you think scallops. The pan needs to be smoking hot so that the duck liver sears on the outside and cooks just slightly in the middle. Now, you've heard all the talk going on about the state of California's looming ban on foie gras. It is supposed to be leaving us come July 1, and I have a lot of chefs and comrades who are going to fight and buck the system all the way. Those of us who believe we should eat what we love Mm -hmm. believe that there should not be a ban for foie, but we are going to honor foie up until the day. Foie gras, you'll hear more about coming up in just a bit, which translates to fat liver in French, is one of the world's greatest culinary experiences. The flavor and the texture is virtually impossible to describe, but the process to cook it will give you the idea of how incredibly fabulous and rich and flavorful it is. So here is the secret. A smoking hot pan and a beautiful fresh piece of foie. Do you hear that sizzle? Oh, I love that sound. (laughs) We're cooking live right here in your radio. Now the quick sear is the best preparation for fresh foie. The rich flavor I think is best paired with a sauce made up of sweet fruit, 
or jam, and it always needs a little touch of acidity. So this is the Charlie Palmer rule. Chef always suggests a couple of drops of lemon juice, and that acidity offsets either richness or sweetness beautifully. So this beautiful piece of foie, which I've seared on both sides, Mm -hmm. uh, once it comes out of the pan for just a minute at a time, was Mm -hmm. scored to start. Crisscross patterns with a sharp paring knife on both sides Mm -hmm. of the piece of foie gras. And when it goes in the pan, the outside caramelizes. You get this gorgeous crust. And the inside cooks just until it's still medium rare and cooked through. Let's not forget it's fat that we're cooking, the good fat. Yes. And it will totally melt if you cook it too long. So it is a very quick sear on both sides. At a high heat. That it is. And remember, too, if the pan isn't hot enough, and this is the method you need to master, you'll actually lose too much fat in the process rather than gain the sear and keep that beautiful richness and creaminess and indulgence. Now, once it's seared on both sides, and we're about 10 or 15 seconds away from a complete cook here, Mm -hmm. you take the foie gras out of the pan and you utilize the beauty of the fat by making a sauce. So leave that fat in the pan. I'm going to take the foie out here. And to the pan, I'm going to add more flavor. Now, uh, homemade preserves, preferably yours, Lana, are the best here. (laughs) But blackberry, raspberry, fig jam, orange marmalade, they all work beautifully. And I'm going to go ahead and add some blackberry preserves to the pan. Oh, that looks divine. Doesn't you could it? do fresh fruit, fresh peaches. Yes, fresh figs, Quince. fresh raspberries. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, I like some herbaceousness in here, too. So I'm throwing in a sprig of rosemary. I just like the flavor to infuse very minimally. Mm-hmm. It's that backbite, that savoriness that you can't put your finger on, but you know it's there, and it adds at another level of flavor. It almost adds an umami flavor to the dish itself because of the herbaceous herbaceousness rather of the herb now this sauce takes less than 30 seconds i'm going to put a yeah a squeeze of lime uh lemon juice rather Mm -hmm. here you could use lime or even melissa's key limes right now are really delicious Mm -hmm. i love that bite of acidity by the way fresh grapes which we find almost year-round here in southern california are, are a beautiful counterpart to foie as well and then the sauce comes out of the pan and right over the foie. Oh, that's gorgeous. Just it absolutely. so divine. It does, right? Luscious, rich, mm. a gorgeous mm. glaze. We're using from a fresh raspberry jam. Oh, it smells all fresh and mm. beautiful. A little bit of fattiness. Okay, going now, there. because I'm a giver, yeah, I have... will take the tough job. Of, of having to taste. Oh, someone has to do it. <laughs> I know. I like um, uh, a crostini, a toasted mm-hmm. piece of brioche. Um, n- no matter what you use, you need a, a little bit of bread to offset the richness of the foie, mm-hmm. the sweetness of the sauce that glazes over the foie. Here goes. You're next. Mm. 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 Oh. Now that this is, is the beauty. Our farewell to foie. Of Fresh foie gras. Absolutely gorgeous. Oh, that is so delicious. You can actually order a fresh lobe of foie or ask your favorite specialty store 
to bring in foie uh, before this looming California ban. It's also luscious with apples, by the way. And if you really want to take it over the top, you sear some foie and you put it over French toast in the morning. Now that's a celebration. All right, speaking of a celebration, Steve, can you run that drum roll, please? There we go. All right, we have a celebration planned here in your radio. You have the next week. Thank you, Steve. You have the the next week to send us your best kitchen tip. Now, we love receiving great cooking tips from cooks and friends. Mm -hmm. So many of the great shortcuts I know both of us, Lana, Mm -hmm. use in our everyday kitchen lives. I've borrowed some from cooking magazines. We found some in cookbooks. We've shared some in our cookbooks. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a great tip that makes your time in the kitchen faster and easier or makes your recipes come out perfect every time, we want to know about it. You write to and via email. But... Live at chefjamie.com. And what can you win if you do that? You send it to live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. And you might be the winner of opening night tickets a week from this Tuesday, June 12th, to the Les Miserables Theater Performance at Segerstrom Hall. Now, we believe that food and the arts are all one and come together. So we're about food and theater and technology and mm-hmm. lifestyle on this show. And the New York Times is saying that this is an unquestionably, and I quote, spectacular production from start to finish. Cameron McIntosh is presenting his new 25th anniversary production of the legendary musical Les Mis, glorious new staging, dazzlingly reimagined scenery inspired by the paintings of Victor Hugo, of course. It is a five-star hit. And we would love to send you to opening night. We've partnered with Segerstrom mm-hmm. Hall, and they've given us tickets just for you. Did you know, Lana, that 60 million people worldwide in 42 countries have actually seen Les mm-hmm. Mis over well, the past 25 years? It's such a glorious evening. And going to Segerstrom, which is in Orange County, right across from South Coast Plaza, is such a beautiful theater to see it in. It will that be it quite is. an evening. So all you need so, to do is jot down... Mm-hmm your best kitchen tip, and email it to us. You might just win opening night tickets to Les Miserables mm-hmm. at Segerstrom Hall, Orange County. We will announce the winner next Sunday. Exactly. So you have seven days mm-hmm. to send us your best cooking tip to live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. That's the email address you send it to, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. Also coming up this week, there's uh, some other celebrations in store. There's a cooking demonstration and dinner we wanted you to know about at Antonello Restaurant. Restaurant. Fiorella is cooking a beautiful insalata fantasia with gorgonzola and hazelnuts, mm. um, a gnocchi verde, uh, a pollo alla Valdostana. How's mm. the Italian? Mm. And um, a beautiful chocolate ganache roll for dessert. Mm. She's a great Italian cook, and this is your last chance, actually, before um, she becomes a mommy <laughs> to experience her cooking classes at Antonello oh, what a great at evening. South Coast Plaza. Great evening. I'll see you there. I also hope to see you this afternoon. Taste of the Nation is going on at Montage Laguna Beach. It's the second annual Share Our Strength event at the Oceanfront Resort. And Chef William Bradley, whom you've heard here on the radio, 
the chef of Addison at the Grand Del Mar, along with Floyd Cardoz, Suzanne Goen, Michael Votaggio, and Alan Wong, will all be sharing their best dishes. It is an extraordinarily delicious event, and we hope you will give back to make sure that uh, the children uh, in Southern California and beyond, because Share Our Strength is a national organization, never go hungry. You can find out more information at montagelagunabeach.com. It is this afternoon at 4 p.m., and I will look forward to seeing you there. Continue to send your email questions, please, because we are creating Grill Masters Galore for July 4th, and over the next few weeks, we're going to answer your grilling questions to make sure that your July 4th barbecue is a big bang. But coming up, a continuing conversation on the beauty of foie gras, live from Paris. Chef Pascal Olatz, the great French chef, will join us. So grab a snack and come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio for the love of foie gras. Yes, demand is higher than ever for foie. Maybe it's because of the looming ban here in the state of California as of July 1st. The only state that has proposed to outlaw foie gras. But chefs and diners are hungry for foie. I know I am. And so is my good friend Pascal Olatz. He is the chef owner of Pascal Brasserie, Epicerie Pascal, and Café Jardin in Newport Beach since 1988. And you are highlighting a foie gras menu to honor what you believe, chef, is not a farewell to foie, right? No, I don't I don't believe it's a farewell because we don't, want this to happen, and we're going to do anything we can to, to make sure it doesn't happen. Yes, and I'm going to fight along with you. Right now, I'm calling you from Paris, and I'm having a plate of uh, foie gras in front of me, and believe me, uh, I feel like good France is good. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and, for sure. And, and, I, and I can eat what I want. The, and, and when you want. Tell us, what restaurants are you at, and, and where in Paris? It's a nice little restaurant, the sixth general one this month is called Jaman, J A M I N, and it's a uh, Rue de Longchamp. It's a fantastic little place, a mm. uh, very good price, uh, and the quality of the food is just amazing. Jaman, there's nothing better than a French bistro. The 16th arrondissement actually captured one of my best foie gras memories, Pascal. Uh, really? Many years ago, yes, Lana and I arrived in Paris, and the first night's restaurant pick was mine. And I remember this incredible baseball-sized foie gras terrine. They brought a, a toaster to the table with fresh brioche and cherry preserves, and you toasted the bread, and you spread the foie, mm. and you topped with the preserves. It was one of the most fabulous, incredible culinary memories I've ever had. That's uh, fantastic. Mm. And why, so why, why should we let people not stay on those kind of things? No, that's, that's right. I agree with you. It has a long, rich history. Uh, We know that there are many practices in the food world today that are questioned by those that are activists. And while I respect their views, I don't believe that the statewide ban, and I'm with you, has any place in California or anywhere else for that matter. There's something beautiful about the very natural process, and I am an advocate for foie. I believe we should eat what we choose, that this state ban uh, is a, a ridiculous ridiculous 
uh, looming presence. And we have a group of chef friends, you and I, Pascal, with Lana along that are fighting against it. You have this beautiful, silky, smooth, lovely delicacy. I mean, better than bacon, richer than butter, and absolutely brilliant. In France, there's a, a couple of regions, but especially in the southwest of France, where you eat more foie gras than any other places. And when people think, oh, yeah, foie gras is, is 90% fat, fat, but it may be, it's been proof that bad fat is the best fat you can eat mm. and actually can make you live longer. Uh, the area where people eat most foie gras on cook in dog fat have the least uh, cardio uh, trouble. <laughs> so, what an amazing we, statistic. It is. I'm going with that, chef, and I might consider moving, too. We'd like to learn a couple of ways to prepare it uh, from you. So on the menu, in fact, Lana, your favorite was the first course on Pascal's foie gras Uh, menu. Pascal, I would love to know how you make your foie gras mousse uh, like the one served with your endive salad. Yes. Okay, so tell us how to to make the mousse. You want to know right now or you want to come in the kitchen (laughs) with me? Oh, well, I might take you up on that offer too, but give us a couple of tips. Slightly sear it, Mm -hmm. and then when you sear it, you uh, unulate it shield, and then you you, uh, quickly put it in a a food processor, and uh, you add a little bit more duck fat into it, and Mm -hmm. you season it. Put a little bit of cognac, salt, pepper, mm-hmm. and then uh, once it's all blend, you just put it back in a, in a tureen and let it shield. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you uh, you scoop it out. You can use the foie gras mousse on just about anything. You could pipe that mousse into endive leaves or a chef yep. serves it sliced as a terrine. Mm-hmm. You can sear yep. the foie gras and make crouton, which is one of the things we love to do, chef, I learned in Italy, to cut small cubes of the foie and sear them in place of a crouton. You serve a wild mushroom soup with a foie gras gougère. You can enjoy yeah. seared foie gras with raisins, dayboat scallops with a foie gras risotto, turnidos, beautiful grilled filet mignon topped with seared foie, and a chicken with a seared foie and a root vegetable and Madeira sauce, all on Pascal's foie gras menu, now through the end of June. We can make the best meal in the world, and... Uh, and maybe in two months we cannot do it again. So oh. really I want to say mm-hmm. that we, the reason we want to fight is not only because uh, uh, we think it's wrong or not wrong to the way they make the fraga. I, I think, you know, the techniques are safe for the animals. We, our chef, we really always make sure that the farmers and the people that produce food for us I do it with uh, the perfect ethic, and we we will go along with uh, with uh, pita if if they let us. Maybe if some some farmers do wrong things, we will let them know that is wrong. So we we are on their side in that point. We want to make sure animals are treated properly. Yes. So banning is not a solution. Correcting maybe if something is done wrong, we we fine with that. No, so. We will fight either way uh, if farmers don't do the right system of, of raiding animals. We will correct it and we will make sure uh, nobody mistreats animals. But mm. don't take it off our menu.
Yes. So, so true. A great approach. And your to- point very well received. With that, I say we celebrate foie. Chef, you're getting um, a lot of good conversation and reviews on the raspberry bread pudding topped with foie gras chantilly. Quite fabulous. Yes. Thank you. Okay, tell us, yeah. foie gras chantilly, how are you making it? It's a little bit the same process of the foie gras mousse. What you do when it's a little bit softer, you just fold it in, uh, into some whipped cream. Uh-huh. Wow. And then and then you pipe it, and then uh, you put it on the top of a little, uh, uh, a little kind of uh, brioche or muffin, you mm-hmm. know, and that's just delicious. So it's kind of a little twist, but you can also add a little bit of caramel into it to, to make it a little sweeter. Oh, and, okay. Uh, uh, so we'll so be right not- there. Okay. <laughs> we're we're heading to the restaurant just after the show. His award-winning right. restaurants feature French Provençal cuisine, and you can find more about Pascal Olatz and his Newport Beach restaurants at Pascal, P-A-S-C-A-L-N-P-B, N as in Newport, P, B as in boy, N-P-B dot com. Au revoir, merci, chef. We'll see you for foie soon. Um, God merci à you, and then I thank you very much for coming, and, uh, and bon appétit. Ah oui, merci, bon appétit to you, live from Paris. Au revoir. Au revoir. There is more delicious conversation, hopefully including foie gras, on the menu right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, KFWB News Talk 980. What is your cocktail IQ? Renowned cocktail expert Tony Abu Ghanem was winner of Iron Chef America with Mario Batali. He is the national ambassador of the U.S. Bartenders Guild and obviously a world-class bartending connoisseur. His first book called The Modern Mixologist Contemporary Classic Cocktails is really an incredible resource if you're looking to hone your skills and create incredible cocktails at home. Tony is here for the first time, and I am so excited to pass along his knowledge for creating the perfect drinks, and we're delighted to have you, Tony. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Chef uh, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, because there's this wonderful history, and Tony, I love the history of food. There's this wonderful evolution of mixology that you speak about in your book and just take us through the last few years at least because bartenders mixed drinks foams and infusions have come a long way oh absolutely and and people may not realize that all these great classic cocktails have great histories great stories great anecdotes supporting them and it was kind of a lost profession for many years really after Prohibition. Um, there was a shortage of qualified bartenders, and when I started in 1980, it was a job that you didn't really look to as a career. It was more of that part-time gig while you were finishing school or working on your acting career. Over the last 10 years, we've seen young, passionate bartenders aspiring to be career professional bartenders. So we've really elevated the position of bartender back to its rightful place next to the chef, the sommelier. Uh, as one of the great culinary arts. So it's an exciting time. And in turn, our guests are drinking better. They're becoming better educated about cocktails. And overall, just having a better time at the bar today. 
I think they are. I think that food lovers and cocktail lovers have come together to almost make one very unique and very knowledgeable group. And so our love and passion and increased knowledge for food has, I think, very much lent itself to a positive side at the bar. Do you agree? I totally agree. And um, if you're anything like me, you wouldn't go out to dinner and not stop at the bar first to have that cocktail. For I'd me, like, yeah, I'd like to go to the bar with you first. <laughs> it's a date. I'm gonna. We're, we're gonna make. That it's a happen. plan. I'll meet you in Vegas, where you're based. I know. That'd be great. Cool. Um, but it's really for me. Like I said, it's it's the first part of the experience. It it's is the first course, and it it prepares me for the rest of the evening. So if I have an amazing cocktail experience, it's going to lead into a great dining experience. And if I have not a great experience at the bar, I'm going to be a little bit questionable about the food. And the most successful places are those places, as you said, Jamie, that where the chef and the bartender are working hand in hand yes. to create their. So, what if we want to be the best bartenders we can be at home? Talk with us, if you would, about building cocktails as you do in the mixology basics chapter of the book. And while there are so many different tools that you list, if you would pick your top three that all great cocktail connoisseurs should have. Absolutely. That's the, the key to making great cocktails at home is to stock your bar properly and, and to get some great bar tools, some great quality bar tools, because it makes mixing drinks easier and a lot more fun. But the Boston Cobbler Shaker set is probably the, the chef's knife of the bar. Uh, it consists of a 16-ounce mixing glass and a 26-ounce mixing tin, also with a cap with the built-in strainer to make it a cobbler. So those pieces together you can make 95% of all the drinks that you'll ever need to make at home. So that's probably number one. With that set, you'll get both the jewel strainer and the Hawthorne strainer and a couple of long-handled spoons for stirring drinks that contain spirit only, like your martinis in Manhattan. Second, there's no substitute for fresh-squeezed juices. Mm, um, yeah. You know, it's, it's the number one rule. And limes are the most fragile of all the citrus, as you know. So you want to get a good handheld citrus juicer. Um, I squeeze my limes just at the point of making the drink. So you can't get the juice any fresher than that. I also use a crank juicer for larger citrus like oranges, grapefruits, and lemons. Because, again, it's got to be fresh. Yeah, that's a pretty cool crank juicer featured in your book. It fits over the top of a glass. And I think it's very interesting when you are committed, like Tony is, to teaching and training and contributing unique cocktails to this wonderful world of mixology. Freshly squeezed orange juice squeezed just 30 seconds ago, Lana, is far different than freshly squeezed orange juice two hours prior to the bar shift having started. Mm. Or two days prior. Or two days. <laughs> ah, I was being hopeful, Tony. I would think it would make a great difference. Where can we buy this uh, the, juicer oh, that, that fits on a glass? Hamilton Beach, it says. That's oh, pretty really? cool. Oh, Fabulous. Yeah, Hamilton Beach makes a beautiful crank juicer. Um, and I've been working really hard because I, I got frustrated with the tools that were available both to the professional bartender and to the home mixologist. So um, I worked with some designers in Chicago and I created my own line, my own custom line, professional quality bar tools that will launch uh, this July. And it's just beautiful stuff. And everything is designed to work together. That high quality, uh, but yet it's still 
sexy stuff. I can't wait to get you a set. Oh, I can't wait to see it. Where can my listeners go when they want to bring Tony Abu Ghanim bar tools into their home? Oh, uh, well, um, they'll be available on my website, themodernmixologist.com. Good. And also, you know, if any of you listeners ever have a question about cocktails, I might not be able to get back to them right away, but if they email me at Tony at themodernmixologist.com with any questions, be more than happy uh, to, uh, to send them a reply. I love that. I love that you're an- answering cocktail questions personally, Tony. Thank you. We'll be sure to spread your email address around. Uh, learn from the best is what I'll call that. Talk to us if you would, because you just mentioned chefs and bartenders hand in hand. And in the book, you mention in The Modern Mixologist, you mention the seasons that all the different fruits and vegetables fall into. And we're just at the tail end of spring. Summer is quickly approaching. And all of those beautiful fruits and vegetables that you mention make me think of infusions. It's one of Lana's and my favorite things to do with vodka or tequila, to put them in a jar with lots of different, whether it be tropical fruit or passion fruit rinds, and to create fabulous flavor. So talk to us about this very popular trend, essentially. I have a saying, I I don't arm wrestle with Mother Nature. Hmm. When she gives me beautiful Bing cherries in the summertime, I'm going to embrace the Bing cherry, and I'm going to muddle it in a kaiparoshka. I'm going to infuse it with rum to make fresh Bing cherry daiquiris i'm oh. going to make i'm going to brandy those cherries for manhattans in the winter time so i can have a little taste a little memory of the summer and then when the season's over i'm going to move on to whatever next she gives me and that's probably going to be watermelon because i i love you can get watermelon all year round amy but you know in the summer when they're growing locally and you crack into it and it's that natural sweetness it's one of the most wonderful underutilized ingredients in cocktail preparation today. I, I would have to agree. There's nothing better than a uh, peak of the season summer watermelon. When we come back, Tony, please give us some tips on how to infuse that flavor and into what spirit uh, is best there. I love this vanilla bean infused vodka, too, that Tony talks about in his book, those little black specks that give you that gorgeous vanilla flavor. And all you do to infuse the flavor uh, per Tony's instructions is combine the seasonal fruit or whether it be chilies or even the vanilla bean in your spirit of choice. We're going to get down and dirty and start mixing up some cocktails when we come back. So don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, the true renowned cocktail expert, Tony Abu Ghanem with us live. More after this. Don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana, renowned culinarians, winemakers, and yes, mixologists that are sparking new ideas around the world can be heard here. Tony Abu Ghanem is the legendary modern mixologist, the author of a book by the same name, an incredible resource for cocktail creations and a global leader in the craft cocktail renaissance. He is here. We were just about to talk about some of the best seasonal cocktails. Lana? Uh, Well, I was going to ask Tony, what is your favorite cocktail to make? Oh, I'd love to know, too. Yes. Oh, if if I were going to the box tomorrow, I would make myself a Negroni. That is uh, my favorite cocktail. Uh, it was a cocktail I discovered early on in my career, although it wasn't wi- widely known among the bartending community. Today, 
it's been embraced, and you yes. can get a great Negroni virtually anyway. But that that is my favorite cocktail. Okay, could you please teach us through the radio waves how to make the ultimate Negroni? I like it as a cocktail, so I'm going to stir it and strain it straight up in a frozen glass, a mm. frozen cocktail glass. Very simply, equal parts: one ounce of a light-bodied floral gin. I like Bombay Sapphire or Plymouth, Campari, and a sweet vermouth. And again, on the sweet vermouth, I'd go with something Italian like a martini and Rossi. Nice. So one ounce each, stirred seductively for 20 times to each direction, drained into that frozen glass and served with a twist of orange. I'm going to go make one right now. <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> Five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> I, I love the idea that you use multiple brands and spirits from around the world. And I think that there are extraordinary vodkas out there, just depending upon your flavor profile. We happen to be Goose Girls. I know that you're a Tito's fan. And I love that Tito's is made in the United States of America, which really does make a difference in an eco-friendly approach to cocktails. Um, we're also delighted that you've shared some recipes, Tony, on the website. We've posted them at chefjamie.com. Tony highlighted some of the best no-fail cocktails in his repertoire at the recent Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America Convention and Exposition. It's WSWA, right, Tony? That's right, and they just had the 69th annual meeting here in Las Vegas, and I had the great honor of hosting several cocktail competitions, a satellite media tour, and really wanted to go into people's homes and let them know how easy it is to make fresh cocktails at home. Um, a dear friend of mine, Armando Rosario, says, keep it fresh, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the key to making great drinks. Uh, we mentioned the Negroni, three simple ingredients proper proportions, prepared properly, right glass, right garnish, couldn't be simpler, couldn't be more delicious. So when you're using fresh ingredients and premium spirits and you're measuring and you're balancing, it's like cooking. The complexity and the balance need to come in harmony and nothing overpower anything else. But you can't go wrong with, with great ingredients. Okay, so when it comes to fresh juices and great ingredients, how do you make Sarah smile? Ah, Sarah's <laughs> smile. So, and who is Sarah? There is a recipe posted for Sarah's smile, one of Tony's signature cocktails. Sarah's smile. Sarah's my best friend's fiance, and for her 50th birthday, I created Sarah's smile in her honor. And again, it's, it's just beautiful ingredients, well-balanced, easy to make and delicious to drink. And if any of your listeners want to get the recipe, I I know you're going to post it up on the website, but it's a beautiful drink. A combination of vodka, the St. Germain, Campari, grapefruit juice, lemon juice, and some simple syrup. That just sounds very fresh and summery to me. Like, I could drink that standing out by the barbecue. That sounds like the perfect pool cocktail. Mm, That would make Lana smile. Yes, yeah, the name is interchangeable. There we go. Right. How to make Jamie smile, how to make Lana smile, how to make Heidi smile, how to make Nicole smile. Exactly. I mean, um, a great cocktail experience should make you smile. I, I agree. How do you feel about pitcher cocktails, Tony? Because when you're inviting a crowd over, and we hope that you'll come on. We're already planning for your next time with us on the show. We'd like to talk about mixed grill, mixed drinks, and we'll plan a summer soiree together. But how do you feel about a pitcher when you are serving a big group? 
I, I love doing pitcher drinks, batch drinks. I have several listed in uh, my book, The Modern Mixologist, because you're right, Jamie, you don't want to spend the entire party in the kitchen preparing drinks individually for your guests. So I always recommend making pitchers, making it up in advance. I'm a huge sangria fan, especially coming into the warmer months. You know, you can make it with rosé, with white wine, light-bodied red wines, different fresh fruits different liqueurs. You can have a lot of fun creating um, sangria just mm. following the basic recipes. And a lot of that can and should be done the night before so those flavors can come together and marry. And then the next day you just pour it over ice with fresh fruit and top it with ginger ale or 7-Up or soda water and set it on the table with some glasses for your guests and let them serve themselves. Nice. It really makes it festive. I'm a sangria lover, too, I have to say. And when it comes to summer, I think fresh fruit. I also think tomatoes. And in the book, The Modern Mixologist, Tony Abu Ghanan's first book, there's a second one coming out, by the way, next year. On the way. Wait for it, because we're excited about it. You have a Blonde Mary in the book, too. Blonde Mary is one of my favorite drinks. Uh, and I actually did that for a culinary event using really unique spices and flavors showing that the diversity of making a fresh tomato juice. And in the summer, yes. as you know as a chef, the selection of fresh tomatoes, uh, heirloom tomatoes and yellow tomatoes and green tomatoes, and you, a mixture of different tomatoes that you can make your own tomato juice and really explore mixing that with different seasonings, different spices, different herbs that it will complement the base of that. And what I do with that, we were talking earlier about infusions, for five or six days, I'll take a, a, a vodka and I'll infuse it with chilies and peppers and bring that added element of flavor and a little bit of heat to the vodka itself gives the drink another layer of flavor. Oh, I love that. Cut the chilies in half, expose the seeds, or leave them whole, Tony? All I do is leave them whole and take a pin and kind of uh, poke, poke them. them. Yeah. So that's what I do. But I don't want it to be so fiery hot that... It overwhelms the rest of the ingredients. Sure. I wanted to add another layer of complexity to the drink. I love that. So the Blonde Mary that Tony makes, and you'll have to buy the book, but we'll give you a sneak peek, is this chili pepper vodka that he makes, fresh yellow tomato juice. I do a yellow tomato soup, Tony, in the heat of summer that people go crazy over. It's sort of like a new take on gazpacho. And sometimes I'll actually throw in or spike it with a shot of vodka. You can serve the soup even very well chilled or partially frozen. And then it becomes a spiked first course, which is always nice as a chaser to your cocktail. And there's some lemon juice in Tony's Blonde Mary, a dash of balsamic vinegar. That's a great key to beautiful acidity and a compliment to tomato. He's got Tabasco and seasonings and fresh basil and a couple other really good things. And then last but not least, Tony, leave us with your ideas for more fresh fruit inspiration because your fresh fruit bellinis, I think, are my plan for next weekend's party. We're going to celebrate the start of summer. And I can't imagine not making a classic white peach bellini. It is the perfect drink in the summertime as that short season of white peaches presents itself. Really embrace that and utilize them. And fresh white peach bellinis are the standard. You do insist on blanching the peaches and then transferring them to an ice bath. You remove the peel and the stones. You puree them fresh. And then simple Italian Prosecco, inexpensive and easy to get. 
and a little bit of simple syrup ties it all together? Ties it all together, and, you know, like I said, I, I serve them immediately, and, and they're just fabulous. Available, they make a beautiful twist on a bellini. Oh, I love that. Setting the new standard in cocktail creations, Tony Abu Ghanem. You'll find him based in Las Vegas, but with his very impressive bar, cocktails, and more in New York City. And as the author of The Modern Mixologist, this is a book that you definitely want to add as an essential addition to a kitchen library so that you can hone your skills and create great cocktails. He is a bartending legend, and we hope you'll come back before the end of the summer, Tony, so that we can have a party with you. I would love to come down. When I get the tools in July, I'll make a trip down to visit you, and I'll, I'll bring Perfect. a set of tools. We'll mix up some cocktails on here. We can't wait. You can find recipes excerpted from The Modern Mixologist at ChefJamie.com along with the link to Amazon or go directly as well to Tony's website, TheModernMixologist.com. Tony, we'll see you soon. Thanks again for the time and passion and cheers. Jamie, is a pleasure. Thank you and talk soon. There's more eating, entertaining, and learning right after this. Another hour of food and wine with me, Chef Jamie Gwen. Don't touch your dial. Welcome to the second hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Welcome to the future. Take yourself from food to fantasy and combine the two. This is our lifestyle feature on Food & Wine with me, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. They call it augmented reality, and it is amazing. And Lana was the first to find it for us. Have you seen it? It's called Blipper. Jess Butcher created this incredible app and the concept, the platform of using augmented reality to share information and interact with some of your favorite brands. Everyone from Budweiser to Heinz, Unilever to Nestle is participating, weighing in, and it is really the future of interactive technology. Jess joins us as she is in the process of launching here in the U.S., and we are so delighted to share the user experience, Jess. It's called Blipper, right? And that's how you pronounce it? Blipper. That's Blipper. Right. Absolutely. And it's incredible. So welcome. Good morning, or good evening, rather, to you. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> okay. If you would define what is Blipper. So Blipper... I should say, by the way, for the benefit of your listeners, is B-L-I-P-P-A-R rather than E-R. There is yes. a reason for that. That denotes the augmented reality aspect of what we do. Ah. Uh, Blipper is a little bit of magic in your mobile phone. It's basically the camera of your phone shelled with a lens that enables you to recognize real products and advertising and printed formats around you in the real world. You can hold your phone up to them in Blipper mode and it actually interprets that, that real-world thing into a content experience on the device. And that content experience could be anything. It's really limited only by our imaginations and those of our brand partners and, and the advertisers and media owners that we work with. Best put, I would say, a little bit of magic, a magic eye through, through your phone's device. 
that you need nothing special for. If you're holding your iPad or your iPhone right now, you want to go and look at the App Store for Blipper, B-L-I-P-P-A-R, as Jess mentioned, and then go get the ketchup bottle in your pantry or cabinet. Hold up your phone with the Blipper app to Heinz and that label, and the whole label comes alive. Is that what is a blip? Yes. Yes, we call that a blip, and we say that a, a bottle of Heinz ketchup is blippable. Blippable. Now, with apologies to your listeners that there aren't more blippable things in the States um, as of this time. There are many more on their way, and yes, we call that blipping. So by opening up the app, which, by the way, is a free app, it's, it'll always be free. It's in the um, app, Apple App Store and also in the Android uh, Google Play market. Um, you, it's free to download, and then you simply open it up and hold it up to the Heinz, uh, or anywhere where you see a blip of B in the real world. And you don't need to scan it. You don't need to take a picture. You simply hold it up and the, the marker, as we call it, or the physical product, leaps to life with content and interactive experiences. It's truly amazing. It really is. Very exciting. I hope that we're explaining it properly over the radio waves. What essentially comes alive from your Heinz ketchup bottle is an image that is transposed onto your phone or onto your iPad, which is what I'm looking at right now, Jess. And the image is, is movable. If you move the iPad, you know, over the label, then your screen moves. And essentially, a recipe book opens and a completely interactive video selection of all of the different ideas and ingredients that you would need to put together a recipe using a Heinz product. I can't use enough adjectives to explain how absolutely fascinating we think this is. It's not just Heinz. As you continue to uh, break into the U.S. market, tell us um, what you've done with Budweiser. We're working with Bud on a campaign around their NASCAR uh, relationship. And if you blip a bottle of Bud or indeed uh, a can or any of their in-store merchandise, you have an opportunity to see the NASCAR car that they sponsor, um, Kevin Harvick is uh, the driver, of course, and the car races around the bottle and you can receive more up-to-date information oh. about the car and uh, you know, what, 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 the, uh, what the race stats are and, uh, and, and more information about the driver. So it's a bit of fun for obviously the huge fan base around that, that particular sport. Sure. Uh, but it could be anything and that's what's really so exciting about this tech, as you say, the Heinz bottle effectively carries a virtual recipe book on it. And that's where the augmented reality comes in, where we seem to change the reality of what you're looking at through the eye of the phone and enhance it with all of this additional content. Now, that could be a recipe in the case of a, of a grocery product. It could be a game uh, or a competition. It could be a coupon potentially to get money off your next shop next time you go wow. uh, shopping for groceries. Uh, it could be a product guide, really anything, anything is possible. Uh, and that's what's so exciting. And we're just at the very beginning of this journey and uh, and really looking forward to all the various different content implications that are out there. Well, we're looking forward to seeing Blipper grow as well. Tell us your background, Jess. How did you envision this augmented reality app? And how did you and your team make it come alive? Yeah, so we're a very young company. We're actually four friends that came together around this technology, which um, I, I have to be honest, I can't take, 
take any credit for for the tech itself. My role is very much around the marketing and the and the packaging of of what we do and the and the brand relationships that we build. But we we took what is a really, as you might expect, very very technical tech, and we thought about it from the implication of real world branding, marketing, and, and product owners, and thought about how we could translate this into real terms for customers. I think the problem with very techie technologies is that they tend to get a bit lost for the consumer in all this jargon and very um, over-techie definitions that don't mean anything to consumers. I mean, how QR codes have remained QR codes, I mean, it's such an unfriendly term for what is a web link in the real world, ultimately, was because nobody put it in a simple way for the consumer and that's what we're seeking to do with, with Blipper. I mean, we're taking high tech and we're making it friendly. We're making it fun. We're giving it a verb, which is to blip, in the same way that consumers now Google things, they like things, and they tweet. Uh, we want blipping to become a new behavior that they understand what that means. It means to use your phone like your eye and to hold it up to something and get it. And it was around that as a concept that we came together as four founders, built a few demos. And it was literally only this time last year. It's that recent that, that this has all taken off uh, and started um, taking it to brands. We did that in London in the summer of last year. And since then, we've grown to 20 people. We're working with over 100 of the world's leading brands. And uh, we're in the process now of opening up our, our U.S. office and hitting the state so we don't sleep a lot in this country it's going to be said but we're actually having the the ride of our lives it's such an exciting space to be and it's just full of creativity and ideas and people have as you said yourself when you were blipping the ketchup later people have a very physical delighted reaction to to this as an experience with yes. their phone and um, that that is just the most gratifying thing to be involved with and to be growing. Uh, what a wonderful ride. We wish you continued success and we will continue to support Blipper in not only the food apps, but uh, in so many of the different brand relationships that you do create. And as you saturate the U.S., um, I will personally thank for you sitting across from me, Jess, Lana, who found Blipper because she read an article, went and investigated it and has told everyone who has crossed her path about Blipper. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if she's not carrying a Heinz ketchup bottle. Mom, are you in your purse now? Just to show it off? I'm considering it. Yeah, it's There's pretty no doubt. It's pretty fabulous. And she is my greatest resource for new technology, which is pretty wonderful. And um, we think what you're doing is is pretty fascinating and amazing. And when you said you don't sleep much, why sleep when you can blip, right? Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. Please keep us informed of your newest relationships here in the U.S. The term is called blipping, and to blip, the verb, the action of instantaneously converting anything in the real world into an interactive wow experience. If you want to have that very experience, oh, come on, you know you do. Go to the web, look up blipper.com, B as in boy, L-I-P-P, Paul Paul, A-R, the A-R is just mentioned for augmented reality and you'll find everything from the latest blips on Wrigley's five gum to Kit Kat, Virgin Media, Nike, Domino's. You can even read the newspaper and your Heinz ketchup bottle in blipper action. 
it's just too cool. Jess, we look forward to uh, seeing your continued success and we thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Yes, a thank pleasure. You. As I mentioned, welcome to the future, right? It's mm-hmm. only getting better and more delicious right here in In Your Radio. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. We do bring you the newest and the hottest and the most fabulously flavored ingredients, conversations, and interviews in the food world. Listen here. We have one word. Wow. Talk about a taste sensation. I will say, Emerald Lagasse loves it. Ming Tsai can't get enough of it. And Chef John Ash, all of which those big names heard here on this show, John Ash, he's addicted, and you will be too. We heard word that there was a new olive oil in town, and so Lana found it. And so we bring you one of the creators of the newest award-winning olive oil, soon to hit shelves near you, already found at Williams-Sonoma and Sur La Table and on the website at thesmokedolive.com. Tyler Florence says this is the sexiest new flavor he's tasted in years, and we agree. We are delighted to share with you the Smoked Olives, recently released Smoked Olive Oil. Brenda of the Smoked Olive joins us live. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Jamie. We're very glad to have you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Okay, so this is the brainchild of yourself and your husband, Al, who has a culinary background. Give us a little bit of the history, if you would, please. I wish I could say it was my brainchild, but the credit (laughs) really goes to my husband. He was raised in a family of of chefs and restaurant owners, and he has what I call an intuitive palate. He instinctively knew that a good smoked olive oil would be a wonderful combination. Personally, I thought he was crazy, but because conceptually I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Well, it took him four years to sort of, he had to create a new process, because as you know, you can destroy the quality and flavor of olive oil with heat, air, or light. Mm -hmm. So in his quest, he had to create a new process, patent pending, and it's entirely his brainchild, his creation, and his intuitive palate, like I said. Wow. So what can you tell us about it? Because we have had the opportunity to taste from the gold medal winning oils, and we're going to do it again here because I'll take any opportunity uh, <laughs> to, to drink your oil out of the bottle. <laughs> That's a okay. common reaction. Yes. And, and let's start with the quite uh, a fabulous one, smoked olive oil. Okay. So give us a little bit of background, what you can disclose as to how you smoke olive oil. What I can tell you is we use only gold metal California extra virgin olive oils. We use only premium mm-hmm. olive oil to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, our process doesn't expose it to heat, air, or light, so you don't destroy the quality of the flavor. So what you mm-hmm. end up getting is a beautiful olive oil that's naturally wood-smoked. We don't use chemicals. It's a natural wood smoke. So you just get this marriage that has kind of a primal appeal even when you taste it straight up, as I assume you're probably tasting it with bread or something. We are. We're, we're dipping bread in it because I wanted a neutral flavor profile to really bring the flavor of the olive oil front and center. Perfect. I will tell you, it's like the best fat that ever dripped off the best <laughs> steak on your barbecue, except for there's no fat and no steak, but the beauty of olive oil as the means to give you that smoky flavor. 
Oh, and when you pair it with certain mm. foods, the combination oh. is outrageous. We have a lot of chefs who call it their secret ingredient, and they, they will sneak it into a few dishes that they don't put on the menu. And I follow the Yelps on it, and people are just ecstatic about it. Tyler Florence does a, in his restaurant in San Francisco, Wayfair Tavern. Yes, we've a, dined there, Brenda. What a place. Have you had the macaroni and cheese? Oh, yes. yes. That's got our smoked olive oil. Oh, <laughs> That's, That's what he wouldn't tell us. Exactly. The gem in there. That yeah. was the hidden gem. Exactly. But he has a creamed corn with it with instead of using it a, a regular oil or butter, he uses our smoked olive oil and it's just to die for. So my point was the pairing with certain foods, it elevates it to a completely different flavor. You're tasting it properly with a neutral palate to begin with so you get a full sense of the oil. But when you pair it with any kind of seafood, any kind of meat, any kind of egg dish or vegetable, it elevates it to a completely completely new level. Oh, it just creates imagine. a completely new flavor profile. Give us some more applications for the two different oils. We're just about to taste the second, which is the Santa Fe olive oil, and this has a little hint of chili in it. I happen to love the heat in the back bite, the smoke up front, but tell exactly. us what to do with each bottle. The first one you tasted, first of all, I should say, is Sonoma, mm-hmm. which is our best seller, and that is a mild olive with mm-hmm. a nice smoky flavor. And that one is versatile. I use it when I do cook. I, I'll simply mix Sonoma with mayonnaise for dipping artichokes. And it's to die for. Oh, it's I love just that. to die for. I drizzle it over corn on the cob. I drizzle it over roasted asparagus after it comes out of the oven. My uses are simple. I use it primarily as a finishing oil for soups and vegetables and meats. And although it's a fabulous marinade for steaks, too, Chef Bruce Weinstein was emailing me the other day. He's a buddy of mine, and he said he just did a skirt steak with Worcestershire and that Sonoma smoked olive mm. oil. He said, best steak I ever had. Oh, I could imagine. You know, the flavor of the Worcestershire acts as a tenderizer as well. And then you've got that smoky front from the olive oil that really is going to permeate the steak. And then you've got the added flavor of the grill to impart. I can't imagine anything more to that succulent steak, but yeah, oh, exactly. that had to be really good. Another simple use of mine is, is I use it instead of butter for scrambling eggs. I'll, I'll quick, you know, scramble my eggs with Sonoma, and it's sort of like bacon and eggs guilt-free, you know. <laughs> oh, now, Brenda, that's wow. a great thought, and your comment on breakfast or eggs makes me think of, mm. oh, I'm thinking a smoked hollandaise. So, oh, okay, gosh. Brenda, you have a new endorser. I would like to share my <laughs> recipe. I make, I make a blender hollandaise because you can make hollandaise traditionally in the French fashion on the stovetop in a double boiler, but I prefer the method where you... You combine the shallots with a little bit of vinegar. I use egg yolks and a tablespoon or two of cream as the emulsifier, which guarantees you a foolproof hollandaise. Wow. But I would like to add in clarified butter and Sonoma smoked olive oil into that hollandaise, and you would have a smoked hollandaise oh over God. your poached mm. eggs in the morning. Oh, my God. Mm. Oh, my God. Oh. That sounds like heaven. Bring it on. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm in, girls. <laughs> so, <laughs> We're all meeting for breakfast the, now. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> The other side of the Sonoma, like I said, I use it more simply, but we have more sophisticated recipes online. You can find the recipes that Brenda Chatelaine and her husband, Al Hartman, have posted on their website, thesmokedolive.com. There's one other product on the horizon for you that you graciously shared with us, Brenda, (laughs) before anyone else has. And I have been eating smoked brown sugar (laughs) from the bag. Straight from the bag. Straight from the bag. And shamelessly with my fingers. (laughs) 
done the same thing. Since the bag <laughs> arrived, when will smoked brown sugar be available and where will we find it? We tested it first at the farmer's markets in Napa and in mm. Santa Rosa where, where people have, you know, really given us good feedback on it. And just by test marketing, it became a runaway train. We've had chefs calling us from around the country buying it in sacks. And so we mm. had to gear up production so that we can be able to provide it to the masses and the general public on our website. And so I expect that it will be on the website in a couple of weeks. Okay, we'll, we'll take a sack of I, it. I have one word. Unbelievable. Yes, it I is. Know. I mm. agree with you. And I love the recipes yeah. that you can transform with the suggestion of the smoke whisperer. Think about this smoked brown sugar and consider baby back ribs, oh. roasted chicken, grilled salmon, baked acorn squash. How about a creme brulee finished with smoked brown sugar, which by mm. the way, Brown sugar is far better than white sugar mm. when you're bruleeing the top of a custard. Peanut butter cookies, oh coffee cake. I'm going to grill some nectarines with it and then serve it with gorgonzola dolce drizzled with some of the Sonoma uh, smoked olive oil. That's, you know, that's really interesting because we have that grilled nectarine recipe on our website um, mm. from Brenda Lanou, Chef Brenda Lanou, who's a friend of mine. Sure. And it's it's extraordinary. Mm. It's an extraordinary combination. There's some people I find are using the brown sugar for grilled pineapple. Oh. And it's interesting when you mention the creme brulee, Jamie, that Michael Chiarello's at Bottega, his pastry chef, used some of it on a pot de creme, and it was just amazingly good. Oh, it had to be outrageous. Perfect. Any and stone fruit it would be wonderful on. Exactly. For sure. I, I find that for very simply for the brown sugar, my husband and I will make air pop popcorn and mix it with a little tiny bit of butter and salt, and it's just one of those things where you fight each other for the last kernel, you know? Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. Brenda, you keep fighting for that because <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll come fight with you. You will see the smoked olives, smoked olive oil on an upcoming episode of The Best Thing I Ever Ate, but you heard it here first on Food & Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Go to the website. It's thesmokedolive.com. Bring it into your kitchen and let us know what you do with it. It is absolutely Fabulous. Congratulations, Brenda, to you and your husband, Al, on his great creation. We look forward to following your success, and we will continue uh, to yearn for the for the flavor of your product. Thank you so much, Yeah, Jessie. truly fabulous. As the delicious conversation continues right after this, you wouldn't want to miss anything, would you? Your flavors and your dishes are coming alive right here in your radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana as the delicious conversation continues. It's all a matter of taste. So how do you get more from each bite? When you bite into that hamburger or that slice of chocolate cake, what you experience is more than just the taste of food. And you know that from the last time Barb Stuckey, author of Taste What You're Missing, The Passionate Eater's Guide to Why Good Food Tastes Good, joined us here on the show. We are delighted to have her back discussing why truly experiencing food involves all five of your senses, and she's offering tips on how to get the most from what you're eating. She is a food inventor by day and spends most of her time tasting products to perfect them, and we're going to teach you how to taste right here, right now. Welcome back, Barb. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me, Jamie Alana. Yes, of course. Okay, let's do a quick review, if we can, so that we can get our palate ready. If you would, please define the five basic tastes again. Sure. There are four basic tastes that are very familiar to people, and they are sweet, sour, bitter, and salt. 
And then the fifth is called umami. It's a little bit less of a familiar term, but it refers to the savory or meaty taste that we get from both proteins like chicken and beef, as well as cheeses such as Parmesan and fermented foods like miso or soy sauce. Now, umami has definitely been a buzzword in the food world for the past couple of years at least. We have umami burger, the burger joint that certainly aspires to the flavor of umami. And when we talk about it on the show here, we talk about mushrooms or soy sauce, those things that have a meaty profile but aren't particularly meat. How do you best isolate umami for those that want to understand that taste sensation? Well, the best way to do it is if you're trying to eat healthily and you have an aversion to MSG. I'll talk about MSG in a minute. But if, if, you, if you don't want to ingest MSG, the best thing that you can do is buy some raw tomatoes and some raw mushrooms. Mm. Cut them into quarters and simply roast half of them so that you have in front of you a raw tomato as well as a roasted tomato. Now, don't add any oil and don't add any salt or other seasonings when you're roasting. It's going to be very counterintuitive to do this. But what we're trying to do is to just, in the roasting process, develop that umami, which is developed by breaking the molecules, the protein molecules, into smaller, tastier components, which are called free glutamates. You can do that with the tomatoes. You can also do that with mushrooms. When you taste the raw mushroom or the raw tomato, you'll get very little of this sensation of umami. You'll taste the green flavor. You'll taste the earthiness of the mushroom. You'll taste the fruitiness of the tomato. Then when you taste them side by side with their roasted counterparts, you're going to get something else that's going on. And what is happening in the process of roasting is, of course, they're, they're being slightly browned, but you want to be sure not to brown them too much. But these, these glutamates are freed up, and as they're freed, they give off a very meaty, savory taste. Mm. And you'll be able to isolate that when you taste the roasted tomato versus the fresh tomato or the roasted mushroom versus the fresh mushroom. That difference between them is Umami. Umami. That's fascinating mm. to me. And that's the one taste sensation that I think many great foodies get stuck on, being able to understand and isolate it. So that's, I think, a really great demonstration for the palate and one that we will try. Now, the other way mm. to do this is mm. if your listeners are open to ingesting MSG, and I will tell you that I have looked at the literature, and as far as I can tell, having done a pretty comprehensive survey. There is nothing to be afraid of. MSG is, in fact, it's safe for consumption. There's nothing really there when people talk about the Chinese restaurant syndrome that seems to be unprovable. So you could go out and buy this flavor enhancer called Accent, and it's sold just in the seasoning section where you'd buy salt and other dry seasonings. And if you taste Accent next to salt, Taste the salt first, calibrate your palate on salt, then cleanse your palate with water and perhaps a, a saltine, then mm-hmm. taste the accent. And again, the difference between the salt, which is pure saltiness, right. and the accent, which is a little bit salty but has something else going on, that something else 
is umami. And that is the purest way for people to experience umami in isolation of everything else. So if, if you really, truly want to understand it, that is what I recommend. That is and very cool. It's a taste perception, essentially. It, it is a very interesting thing to do. You, it, it is somewhat unpleasant by <laughs> itself. But then again, so is salt water. It's somewhat unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just a great way to calibrate your palate. And then you'll go, oh, that's umami. And then from that point forward, when you're eating, and you're eating like a cream of mushroom soup or a nicely browned stock or a, you know, a, a nice ripe tomato that's turned into a tomato sauce, then you'll be able to identify the umami components in that, those, those foods. Amazing. I, I think this conversation really does elevate the way that we taste. Bob, where does the component of fat fall into? Now, fat is a tactile experience. So, And just it, for the record, one I really like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and frankly, one that most people like. Yes. And the reason is because fat is so calorically dense, meaning it has more than twice as many calories per gram than the other macronutrients, which are carbohydrate and protein. So fat is, a tense, we tend to describe it as a mouthfeel or a texture, although it seems that there is some sort of taste component to that we're just starting to understand. And it's a bit controversial right now in the field of taste research whether or not we can actually taste fat using our taste buds alone or whether it is, in fact, just a tactile experience, which we hmm. experience using our sense of touch. Pretty fabulous information. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. We're talking about tasting what you're missing. The book has received incredible praise. It is a fabulous read for food lovers everywhere. It's called Taste What You're Missing. It's by Barb Stuckey. Now, you can determine what kind of taster you are by going to Barb's website. It's barbstuckey, S-T-U-C-K-E-Y dot com, and you can take the test. We hope that you've also gathered the ingredients that we mentioned in our weekly newsletter blast and on the website at chefjamie.com because we have another test for you. The idea of taste, Barb, you've taught us is more than just on the palate. It has to do with our other senses. Last time you were on, we talked about how the aromas of foods can impart an additional intensity and about the sound of foods. We talked about eating on an airplane last time. So we thought we would do a, a test with you on how to hear your favorite foods. And this is one of the tests that you offer so that we can learn to be a better taster, right? Exactly. And really what this, this little exercise points out is just how aware and in tune we are with the sound of our food. It's really counterintuitive when you're thinking about using your senses to taste that you would even rely on your sense of hearing at all. But in fact, it, it turns out that we do that constantly when we're cooking, for example, when we've got our back to the stove and we've got something simmering or, or pan frying, we can hear the color or the temperature that's happening or the way that the water is boiling. Mm. We're just using that sense of hearing in ways that we're unaware of yet, which are completely natural and integrated into the way that we experience food. Okay, so if you're doing this Hear Your Favorite Foods exercise from Barb Stuckey at home, you'll prepare the samples that we mentioned on the website. 
for your guessers. Put them on a plate, cover it with a cloth so they can't see them. Or as long as you're not in your car driving, listening to your radio, close your eyes now Mm -hmm. and guess with us as we taste certain snacks, foods, vegetables, some of them on Mm -hmm. air to determine if you can identify them by their signature sound. So Barb, here's the first one when you're ready. Okay, here it goes. Again? How does that sound? That sounds like celery to me. Hmm. Okay. You're exactly right. It is a piece of celery (laughs) and quite delicious, in fact. So you can determine by the sound of the food exactly what it is. Barb, what do you think of this one? Oh, that one has got a lot less moisture in it. I'm hearing that. I, I can't. Oh, that's can amazing. That really can I do is. it again? Yes, with a full mouth. Hold on one oh. second. Here we go. I'm going to say, this one's a little bit harder. Um, I'm going to say that's a some kind of a chip. Mm. It's a pretzel. That's a pretzel. Uh, very, very close. And then here, wow. our third in our list. Ready? Oh, that is the unmistakable sound to me of biting into an apple. Oh, exactly. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing that you can actually determine the taste of the food before you've even seen it, even if you've heard it over the radio waves? Yeah, it's just amazing to me. And there have been lots of studies that have been done that prove that not only can we determine what we're going to eat or what we're about to put in our mouth using just our sense of hearing alone, but that we can be biased by our sense of hearing. So, for example, one set of researchers put earphones on their participants, and they gave them chips to crunch on. Meanwhile, unknowingly, the, the participants were being exposed to a soundtrack that was either being increased in volume or decreased in volume. And it turns out that simply increasing the volume of the feedback that you get from chips makes them taste crunchier to the person who's experiencing it. Quite incredible. Now you know what all the chip manufacturers are doing when you listen Mm -hmm. to the commercial. Barb, stay with us, please. When we come back, we're going to talk about the arrangement of your taste buds, how allergies affect how you taste, and when it comes to dairy... Can you taste a difference in milks, 0% versus 2%? You know you want to know. By understanding the anatomy of taste, Barb Stuckey is teaching us how to taste. The delicious conversation continues right after this. Don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, we're explaining the building blocks of taste perception on a physical level to better understand, open your eyes and your mind so that you can taste what you're missing. She is the author of the book by the same name, Taste What You're Missing, The Passionate Eater's Guide to Why Good Food Tastes Good. And Barb Stuckey joins us live. Ming Tsai says, you'll never look at a plate of food the same way again. And I do believe that from having read the book, Barb, and are having you on for the second time here is an ever-learning experience. We want to know, if you would define, how all of us taste differently. Right. Well, we, I say that we all live in our own sensory worlds 
of course, all of our sensory perceptions vary widely. And, and we kind of accept that when we talk about sight, for example. Some people wear contact lenses, some people are nearsighted, some people are farsighted. So we just sort of accept that our, our sense of sight is different. But we don't accept that our sense of taste is different. Mm. And it's equally varying. There are three different classes of tasters. And that determines how intensely you will experience a food. Those people who are at what I call the tolerant end of the spectrum tend to have fewer taste buds on their tongue. And as a result, most of the tastes, remember there are only five of them, sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and umami, they will come across as sort of mild. Those people who are tolerant tasters tend to be very accepting of a wide range of food, they don't think of bitter foods, green vegetables, coffee, tea as, as being too intense. Then you have the people in the middle of the spectrum, and that's about 50% of the population. These people we call tasters, and they have an average number of taste buds dispersed on their tongue. And these people can fall in a wide range, but for the most part, they have a, a sort of average response to foods. Then there's those people at the high end of the spectrum, which I call hyper-tasters. And you might have heard the term super-tasters before. Right. These people are endowed with an anatomy, meaning the anatomy of their tongue, that gives them the ability to experience much more intensity from the same foods that come across as not so intense to the other two groups. Now, this is not necessarily a good thing. Because if your tongue is just covered with taste buds and you happen to be a super taster or a hyper taster, you may find that certain foods like certain healthy green vegetables, for example, or certain big red wines, for example, those foods may be too intense for you. And so you may end up eating a more mild or safe diet as a result. Then again, there is no classic behavior. Your, your anatomy doesn't really translate strictly into behavior. So some people who are hyper tasters end up seeking out that intensity of experience. They love the super bitterness they get from big Cabernet Sauvignons from Napa. They love the intensity of bitterness you get from green vegetables and Brussels sprouts. So it, it, it's really interesting, though, just to think about how different our tongue makes us experience the world of food. And by determining what kind of taster you are, you can definitely hone in on the foods that you love most and really enjoy them more. And that's what I love about this very intense, introspective look into what our taste buds say about us. Tell us how allergies affect your sense of taste, please, because we're coming off of spring and into summer, and it has been a very allergic season <laughs> for us here in Southern California, at least. Yes, I hear you. And one of the things that I, I try to point out very distinctly at the beginning of the book is the difference between the sense of taste, which are those five basic tastes, and the sense of smell. Now, they, we often confuse them because they come together and they join forces to create flavor. So flavor, in my definition, is the combination of those five basic tastes of sweet, sour, bitter, salt, and umami, the texture of the food, and the aromas. And, of course, allergies, they make you sneeze, they make you stuffed up, they affect their sense of smell. And so when your sense of smell is compromised because you have a runny nose, for example, or because you're all stuffed up and you can't get anything in and out, 
that will impact your experience of flavor because you've got the three legs of this stool, the flavor, the taste, and the texture, and one of them is off-kilter. Off mm-hmm. So when they're not in the same balance that you're used to, your stool's a little wobbly, and that's how you'll experience flavor when you have an allergy. So it can really, really mess with your head. Sure. It's interesting. I think it's fascinating to learn to get more pleasure from every bite. And we hope you'll come back and join us again. Let's talk dairy next time and review those flavor profiles of milk and learn to be better tasters. You will come back, right? I promise I will. Oh, I'm so glad. Good. Thank you. Barb Stuckey, the author of Taste What You're Missing, The Passionate Eater's Guide to Why Good Food Tastes Good. Do you want to enjoy your food more? I know I do. Read this book. It's always a pleasure, Barb. We look forward to talking with you and tasting with you again soon. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much. You can find, again, the test to determine what kind of taster you are at Barb Stuckey's website, barbstuckey, S-T-U-C-K-E-Y.com. And there's also a link through from chefjamie.com. We hope you'll continue to listen every Sunday for more delicious conversation. And don't forget, you can win opening night tickets to the world's longest-running musical. It's the 25th anniversary of Les Miserables, and we believe that theater, art, and food all come together. At Segerstrom Hall in Orange County at South Coast Plaza, opening night is a week from Tuesday, June 12th, and we are giving away a pair of tickets. All you need to do is email us with your best kitchen tip you use this email address live l-i-v-e at chefjamie.com send us your kitchen tip now you can always email lana at chefjamie.com or jamie at chefjamie.com we'll announce the winner on next sunday's show we hope to see you at opening night at les miserables and be sure to tune in next sunday when the delicious conversation continues pastry chef robert Wemishner is going to sweeten things up Maxime of Modernist Cuisine, the incredible compilation of cookbooks, is going to share the science of grilling. And Joe Bastianich, restaurant man, imparts his restaurant conversation. Plus, we'll dish with bloggers that know so much and have such a passion for fabulous food, along with you right here in your radio. So be sure to join us. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can find Lana and I on the radio right here every Sunday beginning at 8 a.m. Lana, I wouldn't do the show without you. It was a great show. That it was. Full of fabulous conversation. Serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. Thanks for listening. Until next Sunday, we hope you continue to eat well.